0: Well, if you have a Bible this morning, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 17 through 20. Um, we're in the fourth week of a teaching series in which we're exploring what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is uh, perhaps the most famous sermon that we have in the Bible. It is perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached, and it was delivered and given by Jesus. It is the longest recorded teaching that we have of Jesus in any of the four Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the longest uh, sort of moment in which Jesus gives us uh, a, a teaching that we are, as his disciples, to adhere to. And it contains many of the great lines that we know Jesus taught in his lifetime. The lines of, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Turn the other cheek, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And we could just go down the list of famous lines. And one of the books I just wanted to throw out there to you that I've been rereading as in preparation each week for our teaching and preaching in this sermon is a book titled The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is a German theologian who, who wrote this, this book that we know it's sort of a, a paradigm for how we might understand uh, discipleship. And, and how it is that, <clears throat> excuse me, the followers of Jesus are to respond to the call of Christ. It is perhaps the most influential book on discipleship that we have written in the 20th century. And parts of it are very challenging for me. And in, in many ways, it's just kind of kicking my butt as I read through this and I wonder and I question, am I following Jesus in the manner that the Sermon on the Mount calls me to follow Jesus? And if you wanted to perhaps get a glimpse or teaching from a thoughtful and bright Bible teacher, you might want that book. Uh, But for the next 45 minutes, it's not going to be that long, you have to uh, listen to me uh, a little bit here this morning. But we'll get after it. We will. It weighed 6,000 pounds. That meant it weighed 600 pounds per commandment. It was six feet tall, just over seven inches per commandment. I'm referring to the granite monument of the Ten Commandments that stood in front of Arkansas' state capitol two years ago. I say stood because within 24 hours, a Facebook Live video appeared showing a man crashing his car straight into the stone memorial, shattering it into pieces. It's crazy. You should watch that video. (laughs) If you ever just thought about driving your car straight into a wall, this will advise you not to. But I cannot think in so many ways of a more perfect metaphor for how Christians think of the Old Testament law, an outdated religious system that Jesus smashes. And this law only serves as a reminder of our former days in legalism You see, the Old Testament law is found in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I went to seminary to remember those books. But the law was comprised of 613 commandments. 248 of those commandments were positive. They are the you shalls statements. And 365 of those commandments are negative commandments, the you shall nots those negative commands would make for a great daily desk calendar, right? That just sits there and you just, oh, what, is, what should I not do today, right? February 2nd, what do I not do today? But the notion of law brings to mind pictures of a Santa-like God who keeps track of the naughty and nice list. Obey the commands and you're nice. Disobey the commands and guess what? You're not getting any gifts this year. Because when God comes to town, he's making the list, but he doesn't have to check it twice. We all know that we are on that naughty list. And so the gospel is told. But thankfully, Jesus comes to town as well. And he removes all the burden of the law that was placed on the people of God. And we could all be swiftly moved from the naughty list to the nice list because of Jesus and his dismantling of the law and what it brought about for us. That is, at least the story I grew up thinking about, the Old Testament law. The law had been nailed to the cross along with my sin and the consequences of my sin. And I imagine I'm not the only one to have been given this narrative growing up within the church. After all, we do divide the Bible into the Old Testament and the New Testament, sort of referring and inferring that one is archaic and outdated and useless for us now And one is fresh and alive and relevant for our time today. Right? And for so many of us in the church, we hear the word law as a four-letter word. And Jesus came to eliminate that from our vocabulary. It's not uncommon in Christian circles for people to think that Jesus came into the world to abolish the law. But there's just one problem with that whole storyline. It's not true. It's not even remotely close to the truth about Jesus' mission and ministry. And the problem with that notion is that it holds back the kingdom of God from finding a full expression in the world today. You see, Matthew, the gospel writer, he understood this in his gospel. And in his telling of Jesus' story, he invites us to imagine Uh, Jesus having a different kind of relationship to the law, relationship where Jesus does not abolish the law, but instead fulfills the law. Let's turn our attention this morning to Jesus's words here in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading from verses 17 to 20. Jesus teaches us this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have In the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whew. Well, that's shocking in so many ways. Jesus is teaching. In so many ways, as I was reading it this morning, each week, part of my process of like preaching and preparing to preach is I I print out just on a piece of paper the text that we're gonna be exploring. And I kind of make notes and circle things and highlight things and question things and write things that I initially sort of feel and see in the text. And, And in the margin of the text or on the sheet this morning, I wrote, this reeks of legalism. This just reeks of legalism. Not the smallest letter will disappear, We have to obey even the least of the commandments of the law. Our righteousness, whatever the heck that means, is supposed to surpass that of religious teachers. This reeks of legalism from yesteryears that most of us detest in the church. I recall when I was in college, there was this old Nazarene saying that was taught to me. (laughs) Don't dance, smoke, drink, or chew, or hang around with girls who do, right? And some of us... It's true. I'm going to teach that to my son one day. Guidelines for life. Some of us are old enough to remember the days where you couldn't wear hats in church, let alone shorts, let alone jeans, let alone pastor wearing jeans in church. We remember the days when you were not allowed to drink alcohol, which we still sort of suggest in the Church of the Nazarene. We remember the days where you weren't supposed to go to movie theaters and so you rented from Blockbuster instead. We remember the days where you weren't allowed to play with cards because that was a doorway, a gateway to gambling. We remember the days where certain kinds of music that might have been laced with profanity were not allowed to enter the ears or minds of people. The prohibitions of the days gone by make us weary of statements like these that come from the lips of Jesus. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, is that the kind of law that Jesus is talking about here? Is that the kind of law that Jesus says that he fulfills? And let me say this as a sort of footnote for the whole concept and idea of law that that is so, so important for us to grasp if we're going to wrestle with Jesus and understanding what he's teaching us here, is that when Jesus talks about the, quote, law, He is not talking about the legalism of our childhood memories. See, this is a really, really important distinction here. Jesus is referring to something very specific. He's referring to the Mosaic Law. He's referring to the Torah. He's referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He is not referring to the legalism that has pervaded our churches and the people of God ever since. For Jesus, the law of God was not seen, it was not seen as a heavy burden, but a gift of grace. And Jesus doesn't distinguish between the Old Testament that we need to get rid of and the New Testament that we need to like embrace. It's like he embraces all of these totally. You see, rather, Jesus exclaims to us that we, he has come to fulfill the law, that thing that is in the first five books of the Bible. Jesus comes to fulfill the law. That is, Jesus has come to bring to life the promises of God that were given in the law. He has come to bring to focus the intentions of God for the kingdom of God. Each step of the way in Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus... Opposed by religious leaders and religious people who take a different approach to interpreting and understanding and living under God's law. And each step of the way, Jesus reveals to us in surprising and unexpected ways how the law of God brings full life to those who encounter it and submit to its teaching. And I want to spend this morning some moments with you journeying through Matthew's gospel highlighting some of the scenes of Jesus' ministry that direct our attention to what he was saying when he said that he had come to fulfill the law. If you want to travel with us this morning in your Bible, we'll jump from Matthew 9-9 to Matthew 22-34 to Matthew 23-23. But our first step we'll make in Matthew's gospel is in 9-9-13. This stop, in fact, records Jesus' calling of Matthew, our gospel writer, to be one of his disciples. In this episode, we see that Matthew is a tax collector. We might say uh, hated tax collector. It's really hard to overstate how despised tax collectors were in Jesus' day. Uh, They're not despised so much in our day, but we hate paying taxes, right? Like, nobody wants to pay taxes, Anybody in here just want to pay way more taxes than you're ready? No, no, right? Like, we hate taxes, and Matthew's the collector of taxes. And, and in so many ways, the reason why tax collectors in Jesus' day were hated was because they did the bidding of this occupying government that was in their land. They collected taxes not just for Israel, they collected taxes for Rome. And on top of what they were supposed to collect these tax agents were allowed to to add anything that they wanted on top of the taxes for their own gain. So imagine the tax agent gets to come to your home and say, all right, this is how much you owe, but then you owe me another $1,000 on top of that or whatever they wanted to say. This made them hated, but also very wealthy people. And what we find in the story that shortly after Jesus calls Matthew to be a disciple, he heads over to Matthew's home for dinner. And as we read in the text, you can look at it there, We see that many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him, came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. And these were certainly the wrong crowd by the standards of the law. These are bad people. They're evil people. They're not supposed to be hanging out if you're holy. You're not supposed to hang out with these types of people. And so the religious leaders, they come and they start criticizing Jesus. And Jesus' response to them is rather astounding. He says to these experts in the law, the ones who we would think of as the PhDs in the law, the scholars, the academics, they had spent their entire life's work sort of focused on learning, knowing, interpreting, and giving and teaching the law. Jesus says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not and not sacrifice. In fact, Jesus responds with the same reply a little bit later on in Matthew chapter 12 when he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and they come accusing him, hey, don't you respect the law? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do that. This is a day of rest, not of healing people who are sick. And Jesus responds in the same way. He says to them in Matthew 12:7, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But if we read a little bit further in the gospel, we find a young man in Matthew 22, verse 37, we find a young man who comes asking Jesus this question, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. This is a reference to the law, the Torah. The young man responds to Jesus' reply to his question. All these I have kept, but what do I still lack? And Jesus answered him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Do mercy, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You see, for Jesus, and we discover this here and repeatedly throughout the gospel story, for Jesus, obedience uh, to the law is central to receiving eternal life from God. You see, later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is pushed by a lawyer, shocker who's questioning Jesus, to reveal which of the commandments was the greatest of them all. And Jesus replies to lawyer this way. He says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's make one last final step, Matthew Stop, Matthew 23, 23. If we make one final stop in Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus being criticized by the scribes and Pharisees of his day. It's wonderful to be one of those types of people in the scriptures. They were the equivalent of pastors. Ugh, they gave us a bad name. But for their interpretation of law, right? And one of the surprising elements of Jesus' criticism is to whom it's laid against. The scribes and Pharisees had dedicated all of their lives to knowing, teaching, studying the law. They should know. They are experts in this thing. They lived it. They breathed it. They ate it. The scriptures was their way of life. If anyone was to know the essence of the law, it should have been them. Yet Jesus offers this criticism against them. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. There are certainly more steps that we can make, more stops that we can make in Matthew's gospel to see how Jesus understands the law to be functioning for the people of God. But in these three stops, what we see is that in Matthew's gospel, over and over and over again, the law is important, but the law is more about mercy than it is sacrifice. And over and over and over, we see this theme brought through in the ministry and life of Jesus. And what we discover is that, in fact, the law is a four letter word L O V E. We see Jesus bring to the surface the truth that God's law has always been and will always be aimed at serving the interests of mercy. Justice and faith. This is what the law is about in its essence. And what we have to understand is that in reference to the law is that Jesus offers us the definitive interpretation of the law. This is like sort of complex, maybe biblical sort of hermeneutics, but we have to understand this. Is that for Jesus, he offers us the definitive interpretation of the law our following of him will lead us to faithful obedience to the law. And faithful obedience to the law should always see us following Jesus. As Paul writes in Romans 13, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. The essence of the law is love. And as we lean into that reality, we fulfill the law. This perspective on the law, it It should radically reorient our relationship to the law. See, it deconstructs the view that Jesus came like a car in Kansas to smash the law, ridding it from burdening the people of God. See, instead, Matthew says, he tells this different story, a different way of us relating to the law and the New Testament, namely that we are to obey the law as the people of God, as the people of God have done throughout the centuries and the ages, but we just obey it according to Jesus' interpretation of it. And there are two temptations we often face in submitting ourselves to the law that we have to be mindful of as we try and pursue it. The first is the temptation to embrace the law and do away with Jesus. That is, we receive the commands and instructions and tirelessly work to interpret them, (laughs) focus our efforts on the law, and not the law giver. This will always lead us into a form of legalism. We can know that we've wandered into the world of legalism when rules and prohibitions become more important than prayer and spiritual formation. If you're more conf- con- concerned about the behaviors of people that are sitting in this room and in the world, and rather instead of their connection with Jesus and their life of prayer, you've wandered into legalism. We know we've wandered into legalism when we see ourselves enforcing the rules upon our neighbors. Instead of directing them to Jesus. But the second temptation when it comes to the law is to embrace Jesus and to do away with the law. To embrace Jesus and do away with the law. See, we often mistaken the freedom that comes with faith as an absolute freedom to live any way that we really want without guilt and without shame, right? This is the gospel that we often tell. Faith brings freedom in your life and so you can be free or do whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, but giving in to this temptation does away with obedience and submission to Jesus, two words that Americans, we really have a difficult time with, right? It renders our faith, and this is the problem, it renders our faith as impotent and it does not participate, allow us to participate in the building of God's kingdom in the world. Embracing Jesus without law misunderstands the freedom that is given to us. You see, the freedom that Jesus gives to us through faith, it is not a freedom draped in red, white, and blue or rendered to us for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The freedom established by faith is a freedom from the lordship of sin so that we live under the lordship of Jesus instead. It is not the removal of lordship from our lives. It's the removal of the lordship of sin in our lives so that we might live under the lordship of Christ. This is what the freedom that faith brings us does. See, we cannot embrace the law without Jesus and we cannot embrace Jesus without the law. Or as Bonhoeffer wrote, there's no fulfillment of the law apart from communion with God and no communion with God apart from fulfillment of the law. To embrace Jesus is necessarily to embrace the law. And to embrace the law of God is to necessarily embrace Jesus. We cannot separate these things out We must embrace the law of love that Jesus came to fulfill. We must obey it in the way that Jesus interprets it. The kingdom of God that Matthew imagines doesn't view the law as a 6,000 pound burden. or a a list of who's naughty and who's nice. The kingdom of God that Matthew reveals to us is this law of love, this different way of living in the world, a different kind of world that we might be caught up in, a world where justice and mercy and love are tools of transformation in the lives of people and the communities in which they live. And this is why, in our text this morning, Jesus exhorts us to do and teach the law. We don't need teachers who are not obedient to the law. And we don't need obedience without the teaching of the law. Our world and we are in need of a law, a law of love that can bring transformation to it. Last Monday, um, there was a middle school in New Philadelphia, Ohio. That is so confusing, New Philadelphia, Ohio. But at this middle school, they removed a plaque of the Ten Commandments from their property. And the plaque was prominently displayed near the entrance to the school's auditorium for the past 92 years. That's older than, I think, everybody in this room. That's a long time. But as you can imagine, the school's decision was met with applause and with grumbles. On the one hand, there's the organizations and some of the members of the community who celebrated the removal of religious relics that served as reminders of years gone by. On the other were those who decried the decision, declaring it a tragic breaking from a school's history and tradition. In recent decades, segments of the Christian church have been upset about the elimination of the commandments from various public spaces, courthouses and classrooms being the most common battlegrounds. But let me assure you of this church, it does not matter. It does not really matter if those plaques and monuments hang in public spaces. What matters is that they are seated in judges' benches, behind teachers' desks, and in in administrators' offices. You see, the prophet Jeremiah records God revealing to his people that when the Messiah comes, the primary location of the law of God would not be in the temple or in the public spaces. Rather, when the Messiah came and the kingdom of God broke into the world anew, the law would be written on the hearts and dwell in the minds of the kingdom's citizens. Jeremiah writes in chapter 31, For this is the covenant that I will make, that I, God, will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is when the Messiah comes and the kingdom of God breaks into the world and draws near, the people of God will be a living embodiment of the law. They would be and exemplify the full life that, that the law had come to offer the world a life that is marked by mercy and justice and faith and love, they would be a living embodiment. And church, you, you are to be the living embodiment of God's love. You are to be the living embodiment of God's law in the world. Where you go, the Ten Commandments and the law of God are displayed prominently in the world In your workplaces, in your homes, in our city, in your car, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your spouse, with your kids. Wherever you go, the law of God should be prominently displayed for all to see. And what our lives ought to reveal to the world is not a law of burden or a law of judgment Rather, our lives ought to reveal that the law of God is easy and light. Obedience should no longer feel like an unbearable burden of legalism and a chore to the Christian life, leading us to want to smash it with cars. Rather, our obedience to God's law fills us with life and bears testimony to the one who gives life. Amen? There's a lot of like theological and biblical nuance to this. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. The ceremonial parts of the law that we read about in Leviticus especially, the sacrifices and offerings, they're no longer part of our sort of obedience to law because in and through Jesus' death and resurrection, those parts of the law have been fulfilled. Those parts of the law, which sacrifice and all these types of things, like why don't we do any of that stuff anymore, right? If we have to obey the law, shouldn't we be like having the lambs and the goats and the rams in here or whatever it is? But all of that was all about purity before God. And our purity is no longer found in our exercise of that aspect of the law because it's been fulfilled in Christ. And he empowers us and equips us and allows us to live into the greater aspects of the law that is justice and mercy and love and faith as we follow him. As we come to the table this morning, I hope that you can be reminded that Jesus cleanses and purifies us before God as we trust and follow him. Amen. As the elements are passed, you need not be a member of this church to receive them. We only ask that you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, and I invite you to receive the elements and hold on to them so that we might take them together as one body this morning. I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward to receive them while I pray. Holy God, we gather at this, your table, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by your Spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captive, set at liberty those who are pressed Christ healed the sick fed the hungry ate with sinners and established the new covenant of forgiveness of sins we live in the hope of his coming again we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving so we ask pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts Make them by the power of your spirit to be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Take the bread, <clears throat> the wafer. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and gave thanks, broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup gave thanks and gave it to his disciples and said to them, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. Father, we are grateful that you sent your son as an embodiment of the law fulfill all of its purposes that we too might be caught up into the kingdom of God so we ask God that you would make us into the things that we consume and eat that we would be the body and blood of Christ for the world as we faithfully live into your commands it's your son Jesus name that we pray amen